0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care
1: they need during the pandemic and beyond.
0: Hi, I'm Shrimi Glani and today we have a very special episode of the Raise the Line podcast. I'm actually here on set with Dr. Abebe Bekele, who is the Dean of the University of Global Health Equity here in beautiful Butaro, Rwanda, which you can see behind us. Now, we at Osmosis have been working with UGHE for about six years, ever since we met Partners in Health in Boston at the AAMC conference. Dr. Bekele has a very impressive background. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon and he was the Dean of Addis Ababa's Medical School before becoming the Dean here at UGHE. I spent the last 24 hours touring the campus, meeting with students and faculty, and being really impressed with the infrastructure and the quality of education that he and his team have set up here at UGHE, which I think is a model for global health and medical schools, uh, not just here in Rwanda, but in Africa and worldwide. He's a very impressive background. We'll include that in the show notes. But for now, I just wanted to welcome you, Dr. Backele, and thank you for taking the time to meet with me.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Shiv. Thank you for having me.
0: So we'd always like to start these podcasts with, kind of in your own words, tell us more about yourself, what got you interested in a career in medicine and then surgery?
1: Well, uh, career in medicine, I think I followed the footsteps of my uh, brother and sister. We are three in the family. I'm the youngest and uh, my sister went to medical school. My brother went to medical school. So I thought I should go to medical school. That's how it happened. Then uh, midway in my medical school, when I started my junior clerkship in surgery, uh, I went to medical school in, in Gondar, the Gondar Medical College in Ethiopia and three young surgeons joined the faculty. They were really good teachers. So I can say what brought me to surgery was role modeling, very good role modeling. The three young surgeons shaped my career, shaped me. After I graduated from medical school, I was retained by the same university as a lecturer for about two and a half years. Then went to residency in general surgery at Addis Ababa University in Ethiopia. After four and a half years of residency, I was again retained by that university as an assistant professor. Started my cardiothoracic fellowship, then uh, became a cardiac surgeon around, it's been 11 years now. So I think role modeling played a huge role in my being a surgeon. I
0: spoke with a number of your students yesterday and several of them are interested in careers in surgery. One specifically citing, you know, the 11-hour surgeries you've done in cardiac thoracic surgery as well. Uh, So role modeling, I think, is one of the core reasons people go to medical school versus just learning online. Now, uh, one thing that's impressed me in our conversations is you've also invested a lot, not just in being a surgeon and an academic leader, but also in improving your own educational skills, simulation-based training for the classroom. Can you tell us a bit about what got you interested in the career in education?
1: Yeah. When I uh, took the job as a young general practitioner, as a lecturer in Gonder, I immediately became a teacher, a teacher to medical students, to health officers. Then I realized that I enjoy teaching. I love teaching. I spent some extra time with the medical students, the other health professions students. Then the students started appreciating it, uh, you know, giving me some awards, certificates. That encouraged me a lot. Same thing happened in Addis Ababa University. I used to teach a lot an undergrad and postgrad, uh, in general surgery, undergrad medical students. I helped examine as an external examiner in several medical schools in the country. By then, when I finished residency, simulation-based education was just coming in Africa. That was introduced to my medical school, but it was not yet structured. So I thought someone has to probably learn this and uh, set up a good sim lab in Addis. So I started my uh, fellowship in simulation-based surgical education at the University of Washington. It took a year to complete, several months in Seattle. I think I became a well-qualified simulation-based educator in surgery. That helped me set up a very good uh, skills lab in Ethiopia, developed some some quite good curricula, and the skills lab I, I helped set up became the seed for the establishment of several sim labs in the country. Then. One day I received a phone call from the president of the university. I was told I am the Associate Dean of the School of Medicine. I said, what's an Associate Dean? (laughs) Apparently it is, it means Dean of Undergraduate Students. We had about 3000 medical students there. So I said, okay, but how did you select me? Oh, the students preferred you. Apparently you are a good teacher. They preferred you to be the Dean. I said, okay. Went to the office three months later, I said, President, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm resigning. He asked why? But I don't know what I'm doing. The office, the secretariat knows better than I do. Even without a dean, it's an old medical school. It's our systems. It goes without the dean, it can function without me. Then he kind of said, all of us went into leadership this way. It's better if you think of uh, professional development, personal development and grow on the job. That's why I started the Famer Fellowship in Philadelphia, the Medical Education Fellowship, about two and a half years. Really shaped my career in academic leadership, teaching, assessment, curriculum, monitoring and evaluation, program evaluation and innovation. After I finished my fellowship, I, I think I did some good stuff in Addis. I served as the Dean and Associate Dean for about five years I think. The CEO position of the Grambasa Hospital was also added then I was the dean and the CEO of the hospital. Quite a heavy undertaking but uh, managed to do uh, some good work. I retired from that position in 2016 joined UGHE in 2018. I can say uh, the work I'm doing here is probably shaped by what I did in Addis And the different CPD programs I took, the personal development programs, the education I did in simulation and uh, medical education.
0: Yeah, clearly. I mean, I've, uh, again, toured the campus over the last day and seen how intentional the curricular setup you have is and who you've hired, Uh, obviously taking deep interest in not just being a researcher or clinician, but also being an educator. Uh, You have a great faculty, it seems. So um, tell us about UGHE like the founding story, how it's related to Partners in Health, and uh, what the last several years
1: have have been like. Uh, UGHE is uh, eight years young, set up in 2015. We are fully owned by Partners in Health. Partners in Health have uh, two institutions in Rwanda, the Health Delivery Arm, known as Inshuti Mubuzima, and Academic Arm, the UGHE. So we are two sisters of the same organization. We have a School of Medicine, the Institute of Global Health Equity, the Institute of Global Health Equity Research, uh, Centre for One Health, Centre for uh, Gender Equity, the Centre for Equity in Global Surgery, our Educational Development Centre, we have a Centre for Nursing Midwifery, and several others so we formed since 2018. The School of Medicine at the moment has 108 students, 70% of them are women by policy. We recruit more women than men. We started uh, recruiting from just Rwanda, the first two cohorts. Last year we expanded it to Uganda, Tanzania and Burundi. This year we'll also recruit from the PIH African countries, Sierra Leone, Malawi, uh, Lesotho and Liberia. We started with just 30 students and the plan is to increase this six every year until we reach at the summit of 60. So hopefully by 2028 we're going to have uh, 300 students, medical students, in the campus, 60 in each cohort. Our senior students have now entered uh, their senior clerkship here. They are doing their attachments in ENT, radiology, dentistry. The curriculum is set up in four phases. The first one is what we call the liberal arts in humanities, social sciences, social medicine, gender, social justice. The students spend about seven to eight months doing these modules. We believe strong foundation in liberal arts and humanities social sciences is pillar to the formation of uh, tomorrow's doctors. Then they start their basic medical sciences years. We follow an integrated curriculum. We don't teach anatomy, we don't teach physiology, but we teach uh, system-based integrated modules. The current students are doing their uh, GIT and nutrition uh, module. It's followed by a respiratory system, the cardiovascular, the vascular system. After these two years, they go to their clinical clerkship years. It's uh, one year of junior clerkship, one and a half years of in senior clerkship. Then they go for their uh, government mandated one year internship here in Rwanda, and then they come back to come and do the Masters of Science in Global Health Delivery Program. So by the time the students uh, finish their program with us, they will leave with their MD, which is called MBBS in Rwanda, and MGHD, a dual degree program. That's the system we have uh, tried to create here.
0: And it's very unique, we talked about this yesterday, where I think there are a lot of schools that offer the option to do uh, an MBA, and MHA, another master's, PhD. But here, every medical student who graduates also gets this master's with one of four tracks, I believe. As you said, one is uh, global surgical equity. Your vision, it seems, is to train not just providers, but providers who become leaders and promote global health. Is that, is that right? And, and then they go back to the countries where you recruit them from and improve healthcare capacity there?
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. The, our vision is to produce healthcare providers who are not just providers, but also leaders and change makers. The pillar to this is training. That's how, in 2015, we started the MGHD program. Uh, at the moment, the MGHD has three tracks in health management, uh, one health, and uh, sexual reproductive health. This year, the global surgery track will start, and next year, the community health track will start. So by the time our medical students are ready for the MGHD program, they will have five tracks to from. It's a good quality medical school, good quality MGHD, so it's to be expensive. Setting it up, running it is expensive. However, in Africa, expensive education will be reserved for those who can't really pay. Uh, the majority, overwhelming majority will not be able to afford it. Our decision, therefore, is to give them scholarships. As far as they pass the very stringent selection criteria we have, our selection rate is about three to four percent at the moment. Anyone who passes through this stringent uh, selection criteria can join us however nothing in life is free they have to pay this forward they have to agree with their own ministry of health to serve the nation wherever they are assigned at least for five to six years at least so we expect agreements with the ministries of health of these countries the students should agree with us to make sure they finish the program the two degrees and they should sign a contract with their own government The government should also commit to employ them as a doctor when they come back and to assign them to positions that will help them be more productive and bring change, serve as leaders, serve as uh, professionals.
0: That's wonderful. And that's the reason we call this the Raised Line podcast. As you recall, when the COVID pandemic began, everyone was talking about flattening the curve. How do we avoid overwhelming the healthcare system by keeping people physically distanced, wearing masks, taking the vaccine when it came out? The other equation is raising the line, which is how do we strengthen the healthcare system, telehealth and uh, cheaper access to drugs and more clinicians, more doctors, nurses, et cetera. Clearly, that's what any medical school does. It's what your school is doing, is trying to raise the line and train more people from the local communities, right? You recruit a lot of students from their local communities with the hopes that they go back contractually, but also that they want to go back because that's where they're from. They have family. What are some ideas you have for further strengthening the rwandan but also african healthcare system in terms of raising the line there's only so many physicians we can train Even a wonderful school like this 60 a year capacity what else do we need to be doing to improve the healthcare system
1: well all my life i've been an educator and a service provider so my comments will be restricted to just healthcare education and research i think government should pay attention to what's going on in medical schools quality is really needed the quality of a provider that was envisioned 50 years ago is completely different from what the world needs for tomorrow it's completely different the world needs not just doctors doctors who can serve as medical directors leaders of health centers doctors who can think who can write articles understand articles who can serve as deans of schools who know how to collaborate with politicians with journalists with policy makers Uh, Doctors who influence ministries in in policy, who can support the ministry. Uh, Doctors who can manage projects, who can raise money. Such competencies needed today. That's what COVID has shown us. None of us were prepared to handle such a thing. And that's why I think the world paid a huge price. Millions of people died. And there is no guarantee. Another COVID is not coming in 10 years. The solution is to be prepared. So I think Africa should invest better on its uh, schools, nursing schools, medical schools. Faculty should be trained better, supported, should be supported to provide better education, better assessment, better selection criteria. And the trainees should also be given opportunities to acquire better competencies. MD, MBA, MD, MPH was considered a luxury 10 years ago. Not any, It's, it's now mandatory. It's not mandatory. Africa should look at situations of providing such trainings for the trainees. There is a lot of brain drain, a lot of trainees leave the continent. I doubt if it's mainly for salary reasons only, for benefits only. It's because of opportunities. So educational opportunities in residency, specialty, subspecialty, fellowships should be made available and better things should be put in place to retain them here. Retention is not just salary, several other things come into action. So Africa needs to learn how to retain its own people and Africa needs to use its own people. There are amazingly brilliant, well-trained people in Africa who are just relegated to healthcare, to a hospital. These people should be utilized better, should be listened to, should be consulted when policies are considered. Or implemented the last thing is quality we should really believe in quality quality is not cheap it has costs to it expense might not automatically translate to quality but every quality has cost attached to it uh, we cannot pretend or insist we need quality care and refuse to invest in it i don't think that works it has failed the past 56 years it will continue to fail
0: yeah I think Einstein said, and Sandy is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So, um, you know, one, one question we like to ask, I mean, you're speaking our language. We're an education company at Osmosis. We love filling in knowledge gaps. I guess this is a two-part question. What could we be doing better to help your mission at UGHE in improving quantity, but also the quality of training for healthcare professionals here in Rwanda and in Africa and globally? number two, if you could snap your fingers and teach any audience, whether it's patients, uh, medical students, physicians, nurses, something, some course, something that we could develop a course on, what would it be and, and why?
1: Well, um, I think the key word is access. These young boys and girls are, are really smart. You give them something, they latch into it. They know what they're doing. It's just that many of them do not have access. Our students are lucky they have access to osmosis and other digital resources they make the best use out of it Uh, sometimes i wish there are more than 50 medical schools in the region how many of them have access to these splendid resources so if there is any way medical schools in africa could get access to such a beautiful resource that would make a huge difference especially for medical schools where uh, the number of faculty is very low access to live teaching is reduced, funding is not so much in these medical schools. I think that would make a huge difference. So I think the key would be access. To rephrase your question, how can we make osmosis different or better? I wish, I'm sure you'll do it sometime soon. We could also concentrate on the minor attachments in medicine, like ENT, dentistry, radiology, dermatology, just like what you're doing for surgery, medicine, obgy and others, if we can create resources to address these courses, if I could also add some courses around medical ethics and law, and health professions education. I think those would really be helpful. Yeah, because these are the probably the most neglected components of uh, healthcare education. Definitely.
0: And yeah, as we discussed yesterday, we're excited to. We have some of that content we're packaging into those, but then producing more content uh, on those fields as well, because that's where the long tail is, but that's where uh, a lot of need is. That's helpful. What advice would you give to our audience? To I mean, you advise all these students here on campus. What advice do you give them that maybe you could transfer to our audience about meeting the challenges of this moment in medicine and approaching their careers in medical education or medicine?
1: When. I think not just them, all of us should be prepared. We kind of know where the world is heading into. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens. It's obviously clear. We've seen COVID two years ago. It's coming sometime. I don't think we should make that mistake. Climate change, we're seeing it coming. Physicians need to be prepared. The young should be prepared. Um, The direction of healthcare is towards AI, digital health, innovations, e-learning. Today's medical student cannot hide from this fact. When I was trained as a medical student, even in surgery, laparoscopy was a luxury. And if you mention just the word laparoscopy during your exams, you would pass because you know laparoscopy. Not anymore. Laparoscopy is a day-to-day practice, even in Africa now. So the innovations of today, today's students should be very much aware of. They should be prepared for tomorrow. The last would be, we can't do this alone. The world is so intertwined, it's so interdependent, we're so independent on one another, we just can't do it alone. A medical desert somewhere means a medical desert everywhere. So we just can't do it alone. So today's youth, medical students should learn how to partner, how to uh, develop partnerships with global north and south, south-south, north-north, that I think should be seriously considered.
0: And your students certainly have an appetite for it. I've seen it. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, I met with about 40 of them in the first year of class, and I was impressed both with how they want to collaborate and uh, obviously your faculty, many of them come from other institutions for visiting fellowships one week, two week, three week lectures, but also have come from other countries to come uh, lecture and, and teach. Um, the other thing on digital health and AI, and it's one reason we have the podcast and feature guests talking about where the puck is headed. What is the practice of medicine going to be like? Not today, but in two years, and five years, and 10 years. And I was really happy to hear when I asked the students about if any of them had explored the generative AI, the artificial intelligence tools like ChatGPT, uh, about a third of them already had, and it's been two months since they came out. So I'm really glad to see that, and your faculty too, about
1: a third that I asked, and I'm sure that'll increase over the next few yeah. months. Well, that's more headache for us, the faculty. Uh, you know, uh, ChatGPT is not going to make life our, our, our life easy, but that's life. These are innovations we have to deal with. Everybody has to understand what it means, uh, understand the challenges, and be prepared.
0: This is one thing I was brainstorming with your students and faculty. I think there are ways that it could make the jobs of both easier. Uh, so we'll hopefully lean towards the positive. Well, oh,
1: absolutely. It's just that we can't hide from it. You cannot like say, oh, it doesn't involve me. Exactly. It's just a matter of time.
0: Yeah. We specifically talked about like six years ago when I came to last return to Africa. As you know, I was born in Namibia. I returned to Namibia six years ago after 25 years of not having been back the internet was not great. Uh, once you leave the University of campus in Windhoek, it just wasn't fast enough to even play osmosis videos on a phone. But now it's much faster because our coverage has, has improved dramatically. And you were mentioning that even on the trip from Kigali to Butaro, on a dirt road, two and a half, three hours, you have plenty of good internet to watch osmosis videos. Yeah,
1: Exactly. So that's the trend of the technology. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. And... uh Today's trainees need to be prepared, not to just be part of it, but to lead it eventually, to be part of innovation, to innovate things. At the end of the day, we are talking about access to healthcare and quality healthcare.
0: Well, I want to be respectful of your time. So my last question for you is, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like our audience to, to leave with?
1: Uh, not so much, except to thank you very much for thinking about creating osmosis. Our students enjoy it a lot. They learn a lot. Uh, the faculty use it in a very well it has been such a huge resource for us and uh, osmosis and uh, companies like that who provide e-learning access to medical students that i think that should be highly appreciated and thank you very much for your partnership
0: thank you really appreciate it and thank you for being such a generous host and uh coming on the podcast and with that i'd like to thank our audience for joining us for this episode of raise the line uh remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together thank you again dr living If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.